Hello, everybody. Labor Know Your Rights is brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. We are now a proud member of Labor Radio Network. Looking for a radio program or podcast on the labor movement? This is the network to find it. Simply go to www.laborradionetwork.org. Cincinnati Post headline read, To supplement the AFL, International Labor Organization launched along socialist industrial lines. The story described secret conferences held in Chicago for the purpose of launching a trade union movement that would consist of one great industrial union embracing all industries founded upon the class struggle and conducted in harmony with the recognition of the irrepressible conflict between the capitalist class and the working class. The Industrial Workers of the World, IWW, came into being because many progressive-minded elements in the labor and socialist movements were convinced that industrial unionism was superior to craft unionism in the struggle against the highly integrated organizations of employers. The Industrial Union Manifesto drawn up at the Chicago Conference of Industrial Unionism on January 2, 1905, stated the ideology of the new organization. Universal economic evils afflicting the working class can be eradicated only by a universal working class movement. A movement to fulfill these conditions must consist of one great industrial union embracing all industries, providing for craft autonomy, locally industrial autonomy internationally, and working class unity generally. It must be founded on the class struggle and its general administration must be conducted in harmony with the recognition of the irrepressible conflict between capitalists and the working class. It should be established as the economic organization of the working class without affiliation with any political party. All workers who agreed with these principles were invited to meet in Chicago on June 27, 1905 for the purpose of forming an organization of the working class along the lines worked out in the manifesto. An executive committee was appointed to help promote the meeting. The founding convention of the IWW had 12 female delegates, including Mother Jones, Lucy Parsons, Emma Langdon of Denver Typographical Union No. 49, and Lula Winning, delegates of Federal Union 252 of the American Labor Union, an industrial union movement active mainly in the West and one of the immediate predecessors of the IWW. Mother Jones, nominated Langdon, was appointed Assistant Secretary of the Conference and Winning served as Presiding Officer during the closing day speeches. Parsons, who was named to the committee in charge of seeing that the minutes of the convention were printed, was the only one of the twelve who addressed the convention at some length. She spoke on June 29th and declared, I have taken the floor because no other women have responded, and I feel that it would not be out of place for me to say in my poor way a few words about this movement. We, the women of this country, have no ballot. 
even if we wish to use it, the only way that we can be represented is to take a man to represent us. You men have made such a mess of it in representing us that we have not much confidence in asking you, and I for one feel very backward in asking the men to represent me. We have no ballot, but we have our labor. We are slaves of slaves. We are exploited more ruthlessly than men. Wherever wages are to be reduced, the capitalist class uses women to reduce them. And if there is anything that you men should do in the future, it is to organize the women. I believe that if every man and every woman who works or who toils in the mines, the mills, the fields, the factories, and the farms in our broad America should decide in their minds that they shall have that which of right belongs to them and that no idler shall live upon their toil and when your new organization, your economic organization, shall declare as man to man and woman to woman, as brothers and sisters, that you are determined that you will possess these things, then there is no army that is large enough to overcome you, for you yourselves constitute the army. The AFL did not compare to the IWW. The IWW represented some important advances for women. It was not until 1907 that a woman presided over an AFL convention. The fact that the IWW did not exclude the unskilled gave a real promise for working women. In a statement that was to be restated and reprinted throughout the IWW's history, literature and press committee reported to all working people in this industrial union there is room for and no bar against any worker on account of race, sex, creed, or color, and an earnest invitation is extended to every worker to enroll him or herself a member of this union. In content, this statement differs little from some of the AFLS's utterances. The IWW, however, backed up its statement with concrete action. Initiation fees and dues were kept very low in order to make membership more available to the masses of low-paid, unskilled workers. During the debate, it was made clear that the delegates had the underpaid female workers very much in mind when they adopted this policy. One delegate argued for low initiation fees and dues by stating that they were necessary because it is the women that are the lowest paid and noted that there are women who are working for $3.60 a week, grown women. The second convention lowered dues for more members even further, while maintaining the existing rates for men. In 1909, the General Executive Board voted Esther Neiman voluntary organizer's credentials and assured that her expenses would be paid. The Portland IWW branch reported, We have placed a lady organizer on the list, Miss Nina Wood, and believe she is going to do very effective work. And in 1909, Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, the rebel girl of Joe Hill's song and the outstanding woman in the history of the IWW, became a member of the General Executive Board, a position no woman had ever held in the AFL or its successor organizations, the AFL-CIO, until 1980. Thus, early in its history, the IWW employed women as organizers and union officials and soon accorded them representation in the highest body of the organization. Elizabeth Gurley Flynn was born in 1890 and was named after the family doctor, Elizabeth Kent. Annie Gurley Flynn, Elizabeth's mother, 
set a great example for her daughter. She was an advocate of equal rights for women. It was considered somewhat scandalous that she had her four children delivered and cared for by a woman physician. She had been a member of the Knights of Labor in Concord, New Hampshire, before her marriage and continued to work as a tailoress after her marriage. Helping to support the family, Tom Plan, Elizabeth's father, was an Irish rebel who, though he was a competent engineer, was so absorbed in socialist pursuits that he kept losing jobs. As Elizabeth grew up, she met Irish revolutionists, feminists, socialists, and agonists. One of her teachers, she wrote, instructed her so thoroughly in the Bill of Rights that I have been defending it ever since. Flynn was arrested for the first time at 16, along with her father, for blocking traffic and speaking without a permit. At the trial, her lawyer proclaimed her coming socialist woman orator of America. Pardon, she immediately returned to the soapbox. Fifteen-year-old Kathy Flynn became secretary of the Irish Socialist Federation, and Elizabeth left New York to barnstorm the country for the IWW. The Industrial Union Bulletin wrote about a speech she delivered in Duluth, Minnesota, in November 1907. Elizabeth Gurley Flynn is nothing if not in earnest. Socialist fervor seems to emanate from her expressive eyes and even from her red dress. She is a girl with a mission, with a big M. The Los Angeles Times, under the heading, Most Bloodthirsty of Agitators Are the She-Dogs of Anarchy, wrote of her speech in that city. E.G. Flynn is said to be only 17, but her power of speech has won her spellbound audiences all over the eastern cities, and now the same thing is operating in the West. Never has she advised violence, but the teachings of the young girl are so intensely radical and her demand for action so vehement that she is assured of a royal welcome from any audience of extremists. Gurley soon discovered that members took seriously the admonition that all male members will never be lacking at any time in courtesy towards a lady. She said she felt as safe among them as in God's pocket. In contrast to almost every other labor organization, so far in American history, the IWW made an active effort to organize the Chinese, Japanese, and Mexican workers. If you are a wage worker, you are welcome in the IWW halls, no matter what your color. By this you may see that the IWW is not a white man's union, not a black man's union, not a red or yellow man's union, but a working man's union. All the working class in one big union. Even in the deepest south, the IWW raised the banner of no race, no creed, no color, and united black and white workers in a common struggle on the basis of complete quality, without once establishing a Jim Crow local in the process. The IWW repeatedly emphasized that women were in industrial life to stay. They cannot be driven back to the home. They are part of the army labor. There was only one thing to be done, organize them with the men just as they work with the men. In the IWW's concept, women were not personally responsible for damaging effect their presence might have on wages and working conditions. Even more than men, they were victims of capitalist exploitation, slaves in the industrial system, and their exploited conditions made their unionization even more vital. The IWW conceded that there were special problems in organizing women workers, but it rejected the old craft union cry that women won't organize and strike as merely an excuse for doing nothing or for barring from the labor movement. The answer was to encourage them wherever possible by granting them equal opportunities. 
duties, and privileges, even to the holding of an executive office. Yet the Wobblies also contradicted themselves on the question of women workers. If healthy men were jobless while women and children worked, the boss, not the women, should be blamed for the situation. But the solution was to organize the men and put the women where they belonged, in the home. This was too much for one female member who, signing herself a woman fellow work whaler, wrote the IWW Press. You say you want us girls to keep out of the factory and mill so you can get more pay. Then you can marry some of us and give us a decent home. Now that is just what we are trying to escape, being obliged to marry you for a home. And aren't you a little inconsistent? You tell us to get into the IWW, an organization for wage workers. Once we have heard of any household drudges union, not even in the IWW, going from the factory back into the home means only a change in the form of servitude, a change for the worse for the women. The best thing that ever happened to women was when she was compelled to leave the narrow limits of the home and enter into the industrial life of the world. This is the only road to our freedom, and to be free there is not anything to be desired more than that. So we will stay in the factory, mill, our store, and organize with you in the IWW for ownership of the industries, so we can provide ourselves with decent homes. Then if we marry you, it will be because we love you so well. We can't get along without you, and not to give you a chance to pay our bills like we do now. But the IWW never resolved the question of whether the wives of workers were eligible for membership. In 1908, a San Francisco house asked, Is a married woman of the working class a chattel slave or a wage slave? Has she the right to belong to a mixed local of the IWW? She asked these questions, she continued, because objection has been raised by some members of the Denver local to the effect that a married woman, a housekeeper, has no right to belong to a working man's organization. Some wobblies, she complained, even asserted that these women have no grievance against the capital class. Therefore, we have no place in the union. Our grievance is against our husbands. If we are dissatisfied with our conditions, with this, the writer disagreed vehemently. I believe the married woman of the working class is no parasite or exploiter. She is a social producer. In order to sustain herself, she has to sell her labor power either in the factory directly to the capitalist or at home indirectly by serving the wage slave her husband, thus keeping him in working condition through cooking, washing, and general housekeeping. For being a mother and a housekeeper are two different functions. One is her maternal and the other is her industrial function in society. I believe the wage slave's wife has got the right to belong to a mixed local. I think it should be encouraging for working men to see women enter their ranks and shoulder to shoulder fight for economic freedom. Civilization denies the right of expressing our political opinion at the ballot box. Will the economic organization, the IWW, our only hope, exclude us and deny us the right to record our discontent against the capitalist system? This contradictory attitude toward wives and children convinced some observers that there were two IWWs, one on the West Coast and one in the East. To some extent, this was true. The average Westerner member was younger than his Eastern counterpart. He was likely to be unmarried or at least without binding family ties. The Westerners were mainly men, while women were an important element among the semi-skilled and the unskilled factory workers of the East. 
but the similarities were greater than the differences, and the attitude expressed about wives and children in IWW literature more frequently emphasized the importance of their role in helping to build the industrial union movement than the ball and chain concept. The editor of the Industrial Workers came up with an intriguing and rather original suggestion for women, I would indeed set a minimum wage. Roughly, it would be this. Go on the street and inquire the maximum earning of the white slaves, then say to the boss, if this is the worth of a woman's body in iniquity, you must pay it for the use of that body in your shop. Viewing large families as providing more slaves for the boss, the IWW endorsed birth control within marriage and condemned the attacks on the Planned Parenthood movement. Charles Ashley justified IWW opposition to women's suffrage by the curious argument that even though middle-class women were not the equals of men, their class, working-class women were. The women wage worker and the wife of the wage worker are the victims of industrial exploit on not of suffrage inequality. They are robbed as the mill, factory, or shop where they are the breadwinners work. The women workers live by the same method as the male worker, by the sale of the, her labor. Power to the boss, she is robbed, as the male worker is robbed, by the master appropriating the large portion of the product of her labor. She is robbed where the male worker is robbed, on the industrial field. She should fight for better conditions where the most enlightened of the male workers in ever-increasing numbers are fighting on the industrial field. The women workers is not concerned in a sea war, she is concerned in a class war. The boss enslaves men, women, and children in the same way by the exploitation of their labor power on the industrial field. The women worker has the same power as the man. She has the power of withdrawing her labor power from industry. We men certainly did not receive equal pay for equal work or share opportunities to rise into the better paying jobs. In short, it was a vast oversimplification to say that women workers had the same economic power as men to readdress their grievances and to conclude they therefore did not need any political power. Flynn described the problem she faced when she gave lectures about birth control. I am besieged by women for information on this subject, and this opens another avenue of assault upon the system. Yet whenever the subject is selected by a local, it is always amazing how few IWW workers bring their women folk to the meeting. It is time they realize that the IWW stands for a larger program than more wages and shorter hours, and the industrial freedom we all aspire to will be the foundations upon which a different world for men and women will be reached. The experience of Jane Street a radical Colorado domestic worker founder and secretary of Benbers Domestic Workers Industrial Union, IWW Local 113, illustrates this last point. She was determined to build a union of revolutionary housemates who don't believe in mistresses or servants. They would do away with the caste altogether. They believe in removing the degradation from domestic service by teaching their employers to look upon the hands that feed them and the wash for them and scrub for them with respect, our fear, and humility. By March 19, 1916, after three months of intensive organizing, she had succeeded in gathering enough maids to hold a secret mass meeting where they spoke of their grievances and formulated the demands they would work in the future for 
$12 a week, no work on Sundays, shorter hours, and better treatment. Domestic servants, an isolated and diverse group, could not use the traditional strike techniques to meet their particular needs. Street developed a new organizing technique, which she outlined in a letter to Mrs. Elmer Boos, a fellow worker who was planning to organize domestics in Tulsa. The secret of the domestic union's strength lay not in the number of its members, but in the operation of its employment office. The new union planned to build a card file of all jobs for domestic workers in Denver and to make this information available to anyone looking for domestic work. By acting as its own employment bureau, it would drive the sharks employment agencies that thrived on exploiting workers out of business. It would also make it impossible for recalcitrant employers to get help unless they met the union's demands. Jane Street told each maid, you have one great advantage over your mistress. She must have you in her house. She won't wash dishes. The union initially met with great success. Its list of jobs grew from 300 in March to 2,000 in May and 6,000 in November. As the union grew stronger, it met ever-increasing opposition, and its enemies united to destroy it. These included the rich women of Denver, the YWCA, and, of course, the employment sharks whose business the union had crippled. After intimidation of members had failed to weaken the union, the anti-union coalition hit upon a device that was more effective. They knew that one of the union's great source of power was its card file of information as an employment agency. On November 1, 1916, Solidarity carried the following devastating report under the heading, Denver Housemaid's List Stolen. The robbery occurred in the early mornings when Secretary Jane Street had stepped out of the office for a few minutes to go to the washroom on the floor above. Street had been sleeping in the headquarters at night with a gat under her pillow and a section of gas pipe within easy reach, guarding against just such an occurrence. She locked the door when leaving and upon her return found the list gone with the exception of a few cards scattered over the floor that they had apparently been in too haste to pick up. Despite the theft of the card file and the problems with the IWW male chauvinists, the union was growing stronger every day and had moved into new offices. The movement was also spreading outside Denver. By June 1916, domestic workers in Salt Lake City had organized, followed by Duluth, Chicago, Cleveland, and Seattle. But all these unions of domestic workers vanished when the entire industrial workers of the world came under brutal oppressors at the hands of the federal government, which utilized the Espionage Act during World War I to destroy organization employers were eager to see eliminated. Flynn did recognize the weakness of the IWW in dealing with the special needs and problems of women workers, and tried on a few occasions to push the Wobblies in the direction of meeting those needs. But she ran into the inevitable contradiction in the IWW's view that both sexes were equal in the class struggle, and this view weakened her effort to achieve a special approach to women workers. In the IWW, Call to Women, published in 1915, Flynn wrote, To us, society moves in groups of class, not sex. Sex distinctions affect us in significantly. It is to those women who are wage earners, are wives of workers, that the IWW appeals. We see no basis, in fact, for feminist mutual interest 
no evidence of natural sex conflict, nor any possibility, nor present desirability of solidarity between women alone. The success of our effort, draw profits for a livelihood, the sisterhood of women, like the brotherhood of man, is a hollow sham to labor. Behind all its smug hypocrisy and sickly sentimentality loom the sinister outlines of the class war. Yet the fact remains that, in many important respects, the IWW approach to the treatment of the women worker differed radically from that of the AFL. Unlike most other labor organizations of its time, and even many today, the IWW was not content merely to lament the status of working-class women in industrial society, but set out to organize the women, who formed a substantial proportion of the unskilled workers and factory operatives. As we shall now see, their participation and militant activity could and did make the difference between success and failure in strikes. Please share this podcast with your family and friends. If you like our podcast, please rate us on iTunes. It helps others find us. If you would like to contact us, we have various ways to do so in our show notes, along with contact information for the National League of Justice and Security Professionals. Thank you for listening.